You ever heard the phrase, you get what you pay for? Yeah, I can tell by the noise in here. It's one of those phrases that many of us are familiar with and even use on occasion. I know I have at times. There have been times in my life when I have cut corners on a particular purchase and it has backfired on me. And at times when this happens, someone will come along and graciously say, well, guess you get what you pay for. Don't you love it when people do that? It's just a blessing. I welcome that. Yeah. But be honest. At times, though we hate to admit it, we know that phrase to be true personally in our own life, don't we? I just have one example that I will share with you. I have a few more, but you're only going to get one, okay? And though this is a small thing, it, it applies here. When Leslie and I were in seminary, times were tight financially. So I convinced her that we should do some grocery shopping at a place called Aldi's. Anybody familiar with Aldi's? Raise your hand. Yeah. I don't know if they have any in Texas or not. They had them in Tennessee and in Arkansas. And uh, so, so I, I convinced her that we were going to do our shopping here, and she agreed. And for those of y'all that don't know about the story, they just sell cheap, generic brand groceries, and you basically have to do everything yourself. I mean, their prices are competitive with Walmart, but you've got to do a lot of work to get your groceries. For example, you, you go in and you bring a quarter to get a shopping cart. Not lying. You have to insert it in, you get the shopping cart, and to get that quarter back, which trust me, if you're trying to penny pinch, you want that quarter back, you return it, and you get your quarter back. You also bring your own bags. You can buy bags there, you can bring your own bags. And when you're checking out, they just pile all of your groceries in your shopping cart, and you have to take it to the back table and bag them up before you take them home. So you do have to do some work, but you get your groceries at a good price. So we shop there on occasion, and a lot of the food items, in my opinion, did not taste much different from the name brand, but we did find that there were a few items that you just don't go cheap on. And one of those was the generic uh, uh, going cheap on Velveeta cheese. Their generic brand of Velveeta cheese just does not taste anything like the original. So at times we had purchases there where we just had to chalk it up to, hey, you get what you pay for, right? So we know that statement to be true. But is that statement always true? No. I think we would all agree that there are also times when you get more than you pay for, right? For example... At times, sports teams will sign an athlete for a small amount of money who turns out to be a superstar. Also, at times, a movie made on a shoestring budget soars at the box office. So, these are exceptions to the rule. There are also times when you don't get what you paid for. Using the same illustrations I just mentioned, at times... Professional sports teams will sign an athlete for an astronomical amount of money who will have a career-ending injury or just turn out to be a bust. And, and at times, using the same illustration, movies that took millions upon millions of dollars to make will tank at the box office. So there are exceptions to the statement, you get what you paid for. Well, this morning... 
we are going to learn that the Christians at Corinth were also an exception to this rule in that they got something they did not pay a dime for, namely the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we learn that they received guidance and direction and biblical instruction from him for free. Paul gave everything to them and did not receive anything in return. He started the church at Corinth at his own expense. He served them freely for a year and a half and also freely trained leaders whom he left in Corinth and he, he left behind and he left them there in this ministry to minister the, to the Corinthians at no cost. Now, why would Paul do that? We're going to find out this morning. If you have your Bibles and you haven't already turned there, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This morning, we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians entitled, Paul's Message to a Messy Church. And in our passage we are going to look at this morning, Paul shares with the Corinthians the sacrifices that he has made for them in ministry. And he does this to illustrate or drive home a, a, a key point that he's just made in chapter 8. So before we dig into chapter 9, let's do a brief review from last week for those of you all who were not here. As I shared with you several weeks ago, in chapter 7, Paul begins a, a section of this book of 1 Corinthians where he is answering questions that have been posed to him by the Corinthians. In chapter 7, he writes all about their questions dealing with relationships. And remember, Paul talks about being married, being divorced, being widowed, being single. But in chapter 8, Paul changes the subject to address different questions altogether dealing with Christian liberty. Specifically, are Christians allowed to eat food that has been offered to an idol? Remember last week I explained that in Corinth, in the first century, people would offer food to idols because they believed that evil spirits would come down and attach themselves to their food and they would eat it and then be possessed by that evil spirit. I know that sounds strange, but that's what they believed. So preventing, so to prevent evil spirits from, from attaching themselves onto their food and entering into the body through food intake, the people would bring their food to the pagan priests who would offer the meat up to idols. And remember I told you that, that after the ceremony, what the priests would do was they would donate this leftover meat to the marketplace to be sold at a discounted rate. And as a result of this meat being distributed through the marketplace, a lot of Christians ended up in situations where they had opportunities to eat meat that had been a part of this pagan practice and had been offered to an idol. So they write to Paul asking whether or not it's right or wrong. And some of the more mature Christians spoke up and said, it's no big deal. An idol isn't anything anyways, so it's really been offered to nothing, therefore eat up. Well, you had some new Christians who had probably just come out of paganism who had a tough time with this logic. To them, eating food offered to an idol was a big deal. 
This food represented everything they had grown to hate about their pagan upbringing, so it was a struggle for them. So Paul writes to them and addresses this issue in chapter 8, and he does something very interesting. He agrees with them, the, the more mature Christians, about it being lawful to eat food that's been offered to an idol because an idol isn't anything. But then he calls for these mature believers to refrain from eating out of a love for others. He explains that just because one has the freedom to do something does not mean one should in any and every circumstance. He makes the point that at times we are to refrain from our Christian liberties, especially if it leads another lesser mature believer to stumble and to violate conscience. He basically tells the Corinthians that though they have liberty in Christ, their liberty should be limited by love. And that's basically how he ends chapter 8. Now after having stated this principle, Paul then goes on in the next chapter to illustrate this principle. So in the first 18 verses, he uses himself as a personal illustration of this biblical principle. In this passage, Paul gives an illustration from his personal life about how he had the liberty to do something, but out of a fear for, of offending other people and hindering his ministry, he waived the right that he had. Now, <clears throat> some of you who have not read ahead, you're probably wondering what this is. Paul's referring to, what's he talking about? Is he talking about eating food offered to idols? Is he talking about drinking alcohol? Is he talking about dancing? What is he, what is he referring to? Well, he's talking about being paid. Paul explained in this passage that he had every right to expect the Corinthian church to pay him for his work and ministry and to support him, to endorse him, to provide for his needs. Paul talks about how he had every right to be paid, but did not exercise that right and did not ask for support. Instead, Paul worked with his hands and earned his own way. This morning, we're going to learn why Paul did this. We're going to learn why he did not exercise the right that he had, and we're also going to discuss what we can learn from the example that Paul has left for us. So let's get into it. 1 Corinthians 9. Like I said just a minute ago, in the first 18 verses of this chapter, Paul puts himself forward as an illustration, and he does so to make two points. In verses 1 through 14, Paul makes the point that all Christians have liberties, and some share the same liberties. But in verses 15 through 18, he also makes a point, and this is really the main point of the text, that all believers should be willing at times to limit their liberties. First, Paul, through personal example, number one, shows us all believers have liberties. Doesn't matter who you are in the faith. All believers are free in Christ. And Paul makes this point in the first 14 verses by showing that he, like all other full-time ministers, had a right to be paid for his work in ministry. And he goes on to give 
three reasons why he, along with other ministers, are to be worthy, are worthy of this support. Now, let me say this before I give these reasons here. If you think this is awkward for you to hear from me, trust me when I say this is much more awkward for me to preach to you, all right? If I had a choice to preach from any text in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 14, which gives the reasons why a pastor should be paid, would not be one of the first places I would go, okay? But again, what we do here on Sunday morning is we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And this is what's next in the text. And I like doing this because preaching in this way forces me to preach from text I would not normally preach from, like this one this morning. And I also want you to know this. By preaching from this text this morning, I am in no way asking for more money, okay? You've been such a blessing to our, to our family, and this is not my motivation behind giving you these points. Again, I'm preaching what's next in the text, and I also want you to know this. This was not Paul's primary point, okay? Again, he is giving a personal illustration of how he, along with other believers, share some of the same liberties. So the fact that a pastor needs to be paid is not Paul's main point. However, I believe it to be important because Paul gives 14 verses in this passage to talk about it. So let's look at it briefly. Three reasons Paul gives for why the pastor should be paid. The first reason is this. Number one, because it is a calling. Being a minister for the Lord is a calling. Look at verse 1. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Now, if we just jumped into chapter 9, we'd be completely lost here, wouldn't we? See the importance of context and in, in studying through books of the Bible? Chapter 9 depends upon an understanding of chapter 8. Remember in chapter 8, the Corinthians were saying, we're free. They had the Rolling Stones mentality. We're free to do whatever we want in the old time. We can do whatever we want. If we want to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, we will. If we want to attend a pagan feast, we will because we are free. So Paul comes in in chapter 9, verse 1, and says, okay, I'm in y'all's boat as well. Am I not free? Can I not do whatever I want? I'm a Christian, same as you, and have similar liberties. He says, I'm an apostle. And then he goes on to give proof of his apostleship in the second half of verse 1. And the reason why he does this is because some had called his apostleship into question. So at the end of verse 1, Paul gives two reasons for his apostleship. First, he says, have I not seen the Lord? One of the qualifications for an apostle is that they must be directly and personally appointed by the risen Christ. This took place for Paul in Acts chapter 9. We learn in this chapter that Paul, as he was walking along the Damascus Road on his way to persecute a few Christians, was stopped in his tracks by the Lord. And the Lord stopped him, and the Lord saved him, and the Lord set him apart to be his apostle. So that's 
a mark of his apostleship. And then Paul says at the end of verse 1, are you not my workmanship? In other words, he says, look at yourselves. Where do you think you came from? Aren't you the fruit of my labor? Verse 2, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He says, even if others want to call me into question, you shouldn't. Certainly I've proved my apostleship to you. The fact that you are saved. The fact that you are in Christ. The fact that you are a part of the family of God should be proof that you, to you, that I am an apostle of the Lord. So Paul says, if anyone wants to try to question my apostleship, here's the evidence I give them. Number one, I saw the Lord. Number two, look at the results. And he says, as an apostle, do I not have freedom? Do I not have liberty? Verse 4, he's talking about both he and Barnabas here. He says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? He's being a bit sarcastic here, like Paul has a tendency to be on occasion. But he's saying, if we serve you in the Lord, is it any, is it any big deal for us to expect daily provision from you? Verse 5, Paul says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? Paul says, do we not have the right to marry good Christian girls and take them along with us for you to support? Then he asks in verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? In other words, are you saying that every other minister can receive financial support but Barnabas and me? We have to work to earn our own way. Is that what you're saying? And of course the answer was no. <clears throat> but Paul says all that to make the point that he had the same rights. He had the same liberties as all other leaders in the church to be compensated for his work and ministry because he too had been called by God and he too was an apostle of the Lord Jesus. The second reason Paul gives for paying the minister is number two, because it is customary. It is usual practice. Look at verse seven. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Let's think about that for a minute. Is it customary for soldiers to fight in a war during the day and then work a separate job in the evening to earn their own way? No, if a guy's a soldier, he gets paid, right? And we'd be livid if he didn't. If you serve your country in battle, you should be paid for it. You should be given food and, and lodging and clothing and money. Paul says nobody goes to war and covers their own cost. He goes on to say, who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Paul's making a similar point here. He says, if a guy plants a vineyard and works in it all day long, he should get to reap the benefits from his labor. Now, after mentioning a few human customs in verse 7, Paul goes on to tell us how this was not just customary in the secular world, but it was also customary for God's people as well. Look at verse 8 and 9. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So Paul says here at the beginning of, of verse 8, I've been speaking in human terms to you, but doesn't God say the same thing? 
Here in verse 9, he quotes Deuteronomy 25.4. That says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Now, what in the world does an ox have to do with anything here? Well, the Egyptians had an interesting custom that the Israelites picked up along the way. Whenever they wanted to separate grain from the husk, they would tie a big, giant, round, flat stone to that oxen, and it would walk over the grain, dragging that stone, and that stone would crush the husks that would release the grain. Now, if you wanted to frustrate that ox, all you had to do was put a muzzle over it so that it could not eat any of the grain as it walked along. Let's be honest, that would be cruel, wouldn't it? I mean, if that ox is going to drag around that big, that big rock all day long, he ought to be able to take a few bites every now and again. That's the point. Paul is using this Old Testament teaching as a metaphor for the minister. He says in verse 10, Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Paul explains here that God is not speaking primarily about an ox here in Deuteronomy, but he is speaking metaphorically about the laborer. He's making the point that men ought to earn a living from their labor. In the same way an ox should get his reward for his labor, so a man should get rewarded from his. Paul's making the point that God set it up in this way for his servants to be compensated for their work in ministry. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is Paul's main point. He says, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we, do not we even more? Paul makes a clear application here. This is straightforward. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, me and Barnabas and others, if we have done these things, is a little compensation too much to ask? If we have sowed life-transforming, eternal, forever things to you, is it any big deal for you to give back to us some material things? Paul says, you don't hold back from giving material things to non-spiritual, material people when they do things for you. Why would you hold back from supporting a servant of God? It's a good point, isn't it? Now, Paul is not saying a minister should be lavished with wealth, all right? But he is saying he should be taken care of for his service in the Lord. And again, let me say this again. I'm not talking about myself here, okay? Again, I want to thank you for how you've taken care of our family. You've been such a blessing to our family, and we could, we could never thank you enough for how you've blessed us. But I do want to encourage you, you and me, self-included here, to continue to support the faithful in ministry. You're going to have a great opportunity in a few months to once again send pastors and church leaders in Nicaragua to the Bible Institute to be trained. And I want to, I want to encourage each and every one of you. And, and for those of you who are not familiar with it, you're, you're going to become more familiar in a few weeks, when, in a few months when I begin to talk about it every Sunday. But 
I want to encourage each and every one of you to be involved in this because it's biblical to support ministers in this way. Paul goes on to show us in this passage that this concept of of paying God's servants is not simply a New Testament notion, but was established by God in the Old Testament. God puts this plan in place. He put it in place long ago for his servants. Look at verse 13. Paul says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the Old Testament, when God set up the priesthood, He set it up in such a way for priests to get compensated in their service to the Lord. So He's making the point once again here that God's servants should be compensated for the work they do in ministry. So the first two reasons Paul gives for why a minister should be compensated in ministry is number one, because it's a calling, number two, because it's customary, and number three, because it is Christ-ordained. Look at verse 14. Paul says, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. In verse 14, Paul informs us that the Lord Jesus has also commanded that servants of God be compensated for the work that they do in ministry. The Lord, Paul says, commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should make their living from the gospel. So the fact that ministers should be paid, it goes beyond Paul, it goes beyond human reasoning to Christ. It is Christ ordained. So we've seen in this passage that Paul goes to great lengths to make the point that he, like other believers, has freedom. He has rights like all the, all the rest. He has a right to receive, receive support from the churches like every other minister. And he has the right to exercise this freedom. But there is another point that Paul wants to make in this passage that is really the key point. And it's in verses 15 through 18. And it's this. Though all believers have liberty, number two, all believers should be willing to limit their liberty. After having gone to great lengths to establish the right that he has to be compensated for his work and ministry, in verses 15 through 18, Paul explains the fact that he has waived that right. So in verses 1 through 14, he establishes the right he has, And in verses 15 through 18, he explains how he has waived that right. He actually first makes mention of this in verse 12. And then goes on to further explain in verses 15 through 18. Look at the end of verse 12. Paul says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He says, Though we have the right to payment, we waive that right. Why? He tells us here. To not hinder the advancement of the gospel. Now, why would this hinder the advancement of the gospel for Paul? Well, Paul was a pioneer. He went to areas where believers and churches were non-existent. And that's where Paul ministered. 
And he was concerned that, that after a church was established, if he started asking for money, many of the outsiders would begin to question his motives. And that would hinder his ministry and hinder the spread of the gospel. So he lets the Corinthians in on one reason why he waives the right to support financially. You see, Paul didn't mind that people knew that he was making tents for profit. He didn't mind that. But he did not want outsiders, especially believers, to question his motives for ministry. So that's one of the reasons he waived his support. Another reason he mentions is in verses 15 through 18. Paul says in verse 15, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Once again, Paul says, I've waived my right to be paid. And he goes on to further say, nor am I writing these things to you now for any such provision. In other words, nor am I writing you now for this kind of support. He says, I've waived my right to be paid and I don't want you to start paying me after you read this. He said, I've waived that right. And then Paul goes on to give his reason why. Not only does he not want to hinder the advancement of the gospel, but Paul says that he waives this right because he does not want anyone to deprive him of his reason for boasting. Now that's odd, isn't it? It's kind of strange. I mean, isn't boasting a bad thing? Kind of learned that, right? Haven't we learned that in scriptures? Boasting, isn't it a prideful act? Oftentimes it is. But the word that Paul uses here carries with it a different idea. Paul is not talking about being proud and being puffed up. But there is something he, he talks about here that, that he contributes to his ministry that is unique, that thrills him, that gives him an even greater sense of joy and excitement that he does not want taken away from him. What is this contribution? Paul is talking about. Well, in verses 16 through 17, he explains what it is not, and then he explains what it is in verse 18. Look at verse 16 and 17. First verse 16, Paul says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So Paul is not talking about preaching the gospel, giving him a reason for boasting. That's not what he's referring to. He says, necessity has been laid upon me. In other words, God has commanded me to preach, and he even ends with, woe to me if I don't preach. God has commanded me to do it, so I better do it. So he's not talking about preaching. Verse 17, Paul says, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. So Paul says in verse 16, Preaching is not what I'm talking about. Verse 17, he makes clear he's not talking about being in ministry either. I've had people say to me before, and I've heard it said to other pastors, man, you're, you're a pastor. What, what an incredible commitment that you have made. Your parents must be so proud of you. And I think to myself, God called me to be here. This is a calling. To be honest with you, I had no intention of being a pastor. In college, I had my own plans. They didn't include God, nor ministry, nor Fellowship Bible Church. Yet here I am. 
God had other plans. I have no reason to boast for this, and neither did Paul. He makes a similar point. He said, if I would have surrendered to ministry by my own power, I might have something to brag about. But I'm not here serving the Lord by my own will. He said, God called me to do it. I didn't choose this. So if not preaching, if not being in ministry, what unique contribution did Paul make in ministry that thrilled him? What did, did he do that added to his ministry that gave him a greater sense of joy and excitement? Look at verse 18. He tells us, What then is my reward that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel? What is it that thrilled Paul? What is the contribution that he did not have to make, that he chose to make, that thrilled him, that gave him an even greater sense of joy and excitement, waving the right to support so that he could present the gospel free of charge? He says, though I have the right to support, I will never use it. I have refused it so that you are not burdened or hindered by anything so that you can receive the wonderful message of the gospel free of charge. Believers, if we really love one another and want to see people come to know and love and follow and trust in the Lord Jesus, then we must be willing as well to set aside certain liberties to win them and to grow them in godliness. That's Paul's point. Many of the Corinthians were bothered by the limits being placed upon their freedom, but Paul counted it all joy to waive the rights he had for others. So should we. Let me end with this. This message would not be complete. In fact, no message is complete without looking to the cross. Though we've been talking primarily about Paul abstaining from that which was rightfully his for the sake of the Corinthians, we see an even greater example of this from our Lord Jesus in Philippians 2, 5-8. through 8. Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In this passage, Paul tells us there was a time in history when Jesus, the eternal Son of God, refused to cling to his status as God for our sakes. Now understand, he could have clung to it. Because Christ is equal to and has the same nature as God, he could have said, no, I'm not going to do it. I have the same nature and essence as the Father. I am equal to him, therefore I refuse to become a part of my created world because I am creator God. He had every right to remain where he was in the state he was in, but instead we're told that he emptied himself by taking on flesh and by becoming a lowly servant. We're also told that Christ lived the perfect life for us that we could never live. 
He was perfect inside and out. And he was obedient to the point of death. And not just any death, but a painful death on a shameful cross. And he did all of that so that whoever would trust in him alone for salvation can be made right with God. So though Christ did not have to do anything, listen to me when I say this, he did everything for us. He went as far as giving his life away He took on the punishment of sin that we deserve. And He did all of that so that we might have life. And not just any life, but an eternal, abundant, and full life with God. If you're here this morning and you are not trusting in Christ for your salvation, please hear me when I say this. This is what Christ has done for us. And if you have not done this, I pray you would today personally receive this work that Christ has done on your behalf. Pray this very morning you would make this decision to turn from your sin and run to Christ, cling to Christ, place your faith and trust in Him, in Him alone for salvation. Let's pray.